Disc 20 Looking back at the words many years on, they seem strangely close to what might be said of a religious figure, someone about to be declared a saint by the Catholic Church, a holy figure whose glance or touch could heal. At the time, though, they were very much welcomed and assented to. Blair went on, People everywhere, not just here in Britain, kept faith with Princess Diana. They liked her, they loved her. They regarded her as one of the people. She was the people's princess, and that is how she will stay, how she will remain in our hearts and our memories forever. These are the sentiments of one natural charismatic playing tribute to another. Blair regarded himself as the people's prime minister, leading the people's party, beyond left and right, beyond faction or ideology, a political miracle worker with a direct line to the people's instincts. And, in the country, after his impromptu eulogy to Diana, astonishingly, his approval rating rose to over 90%, a figure we do not normally witness in democracies. Blair and Campbell then paid their greatest service to an institution which represented Old Britain, or the forces of conservatism, the monarchy itself. The Queen, still angry and upset about Diana's behaviour, wanted a quiet private funeral, and wanted also to remain away from the scenes of public mourning in London. She stayed at Balmoral, looking after her devastated grandsons. This may well have been the grandmotherly thing to do, and the best thing for them, but it could have been disastrous for her public image. There was a strange mood in the country, a frantic edge to the mourning, which Blair had predicted from the first. The lack of publicly mourning Windsors, the lack of a flag at half-mast over Buckingham Palace, any suggestion of a quiet funeral, all seemed to confirm all Diana's most bitter thoughts about a cold and unfeeling royal family. With Prince Charles's full agreement, Blair and his aides cajoled the palace first into accepting that this would have to be a huge public funeral so that the country's grief could be expressed, and second, that the Queen should return to London. She did, just in time to quieten a growing mood of anger about her behaviour. This was a generational problem as well as a class one. The Queen had been brought up in a land of buttoned lips, stoicism and private grieving. She now reigned over a country which expected and almost required exhibitionism. To let it all loll out had become a guarantee of authenticity. For some years in Britain, the deaths of children or the scenes of fatal accidents had been marked by little shrines of cellophane-wrapped flowers, cards and soft toys. In the run-up to Diana's funeral, parts of central London seemed Mediterranean in their public grieving. There were vast mounds of flowers, people sleeping out, holding placards, weeping in the streets. Strangers hugged strangers. If Blair's words in Trimden suggested Diana was a living saint, a sub-religious hysteria responded to that thought. People queuing to sign a book of condolence at St. James's Palace reported that her image was appearing supernaturally in the background of an oil painting. The funeral itself was like no other before, and will never be mimicked. The capital was at a standstill. Among the lucky ones invited to Westminster Abbey, gay men in matching sadomasochistic leather outfits queued up with members of the household cavalry in long leather boots and jangling spurs. 
Campaigners stood with earls. Entertainers shared programmes with elderly politicians as the worlds of rock music and aristocracy, charity work and politics jostled together. Elton John performed a hastily rewritten version of Candle in the Wind, his lament for Marilyn Monroe, and Princess Diana's brother Earl Spencer made an angrily half-coded attack from the pulpit on the Windsor's treatment of his sister. This was applauded when it was relayed outside, and then disloyal clapping was heard in the abbey itself. Diana's body was driven to her last resting place and showered with flowers all the way. In another echo of Marilyn Monroe, Diana's death would begin a worldwide rumour that she had been murdered, either because she was pregnant by Dodie or because she was about to marry a Muslim. Wild theories about British Secret Service agents would ripple through cyberspace, reappearing regularly in newspapers. Those same papers, implicated in the hounding of Diana by paparazzi photographers, whose work they bought eagerly, were more obviously to blame. Less was said about that. Nearly a decade later, an inquiry headed by a former Metropolitan Police Commissioner concluded she had died because her driver was drunk and trying to throw off pursuing photographers. This was greeted by the conspiracy theorists as another establishment cover-up. The Queen recovered her standing after making a grim live broadcast about her wayward former daughter-in-law. She would later rise again in public esteem to be seen as one of the most successful as well as longest-serving sovereigns for centuries. A popular film about these events sealed the verdict. Blair never again quite captured the mood of the country as he did that late summer. It may be that his advice and help to the Queen in 1997 was vital to her, as well as being in the view of some officials thoroughly impertinent. What did Tony Blair take from the force of the Diana cult, and of charismatic celebrity generally? His instinct for popular culture when he arrived in power was uncanny. He too would soon launch himself onto daytime television programmes, spinning an engaging and chirpy story about his life and interests, not always accurate in every detail. The New Age spiritualism, which came out into the open when Diana died with its shrines and its charms, its wide-eyedness, was echoed by the influence of people such as Carol Kaplan in Blair's Downing Street Circle. But it went further. What other politicians failed to grasp, and he did grasp, was the power of optimism expressed by the glossy world of celebrity, and people's readiness to forgive their favourites not just once, but again and again. In celebrity land, if you had charisma and you apologised, or better still, bared a little of your soul, you could get away with most things short of murder. Interesting. But the world of politics would prove to be a little tougher. Days of Hope Optimism was the only real force behind the Northern Ireland peace process. Too often, this is now remembered by one of Blair's greatest soundbites as the talks reached a climax. This is no time for soundbites. I feel the hand of history on my shoulder. While irresistibly comic, it would be a horribly unfair thing to hold on to from one of Blair's biggest achievements. As we have seen, John Major had been tenacious in trying to bring Republicans and Unionists to the table, but there had been a stalemate, contributed to by both IRA bloody-mindedness and his own parliamentary weakness. Encouraged by Bill Clinton, Blair had decided in opposition that an Irish peace settlement would be one of his top priorities in government. 
He went to the province as his first visit after winning power and focused Number 10 on the negotiations as soon as the IRA, sensing a new opportunity, announced a further ceasefire. In Momolum, the pugnacious, earthy and spectacularly brave new Northern Ireland secretary, he had someone prepared to F and blind at unionists and coup or hug Sinn Féiners in pursuit of a deal. Molum was, after Blair himself, the nearest the new government had to a charismatic celebrity. Quite soon, the Ulster Unionist politicians found her a bit much and suspected she was basically green. She concentrated her charm and bullying on the Republicans, while a number 10 team run by Blair's chief aides concentrated their work on the Unionists. Blair would emphasise his own family's Unionist roots to try to win trust. As under Major, there were three separate negotiations taking place simultaneously. There was direct talking between the Northern Irish political parties aimed at producing a power-sharing assembly in which they could all sit. This was chaired by former US Senator George Mitchell and was the toughest part. There were the talks between the Northern Irish parties and the British and Irish governments about the border and the constitutional position of Northern Ireland in the future. And finally, there were direct talks between London and Dublin on the wider constitutional and security settlement. The story of the negotiations in detail is gripping, but cannot be given here. Suffice it to say that this was a long, intensely difficult process, which appeared to have broken down at numerous points and was kept going mainly thanks to Blair himself. His advisers grumbled that he spent a ludicrously disproportionate amount of time on Northern Ireland, expending charm, energy, long days and late nights for months at a time. He also took big personal risks, as when early on he invited Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness of Sinn Féin, the latter also a top provisional IRA commander, to Downing Street. Some in the Northern Ireland office, as well as in Unionist politics, believed Blair personally gave too much away to the Republicans, particularly over the release of terrorist prisoners. His former Northern Ireland secretary and friend, Peter Mandelson, later said as much. But he spent most of his time trying to keep the Unionists with him, having moved Labour policy away from a position of support for Irish unification, and in Washington, Blair was seen as too Unionist. At one point, when talks had broken down again, Molam made the astonishing personal decision to go into the notorious Mays prison herself and talk to Republican and Loyalist terrorist prisoners. Hiding behind their politicians, the imprisoned hard men still called the shots, at a time when this was not a metaphorical expression. Given a deadline for Easter 1998, after last gasp setbacks, a deal was finally struck. Northern Ireland would stay part of the UK for as long as the majority there wished it. The Republic of Ireland would give up the territorial claim to Northern Ireland, amending its constitution. The parties would combine in a power-sharing executive, based on a new elected assembly. There would be a new north-south body, knitting the two parts of Ireland together in various practical, undramatic ways. The paramilitary organisations would surrender or destroy their weapons, monitored by an independent body. Prisoners would be released. The policing of Northern Ireland, long a sore point, would be made fairer. This deal involved much pain, particularly for the Unionists. It was only the start of true peace and would be threatened frequently afterwards. The horrific bombing of the centre of Omar a few months after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement was the worst setback. A renegade IRA splinter group murdered 29 people and injured 200. Yet this time, the extremists seemed unable to stop the rest from talking. 
Once the agreement had been ratified by referendums on both sides of the border, the decommissioning of arms proved an endless and wearisome game of bluff. Though the two leaders of the moderate parties in Northern Ireland, David Trimble of the Ulster Unionists and John Hume of the SDLP, won the Nobel Prize for Peace, the agreement was to elbow both their parties aside. With electorates nervous, they lost out at the ballot box to the harder-line Democratic Unionists of Dr Ian Paisley and to Sinn Féin under Adams and McGuinness. This made it harder to set up an effective power-sharing executive and assembly in Belfast. Yet, astonishingly, the so-called Dr No of Unionism, Paisley, and his Republican enemy, Adams, would eventually sit down together. The thuggery and crime attendant on years of terrorist activity has not yet disappeared. Yet because of the agreement, hundreds of people who would have died had the troubles continued are alive and living peaceful lives. Investment has returned. Belfast is a transformed, cleaner, busier, more confident city. Large businesses increasingly work on all-island basis, despite the existence of two currencies and a border. Tony Blair can take a sizable slice of the credit. As one of his biographers wrote, he was exploring his own ability to take a deep-seated problem and deal with it. It was a life-changing experience for him. The Tartan Pizza If the Good Friday Agreement changed the UK, Scottish and Welsh devolution plans changed Britain. Through the Tory years, the case for a Scottish Parliament had been bubbling north of the border. Margaret Thatcher was seen as a conspicuously English figure, imposing harsh economic penalties on Scotland, which considered itself inherently more egalitarian and democratic. This did not stop Scots buying their council houses. When she came to power, the proportion of people living in state housing was higher than in many Eastern European countries under communism. Nor did they send back their tax cuts or fail to use the new legislation to choose which schools their children went to. But Scotland did have a public culture further to the left than that of southern England, and the real action came from the respectable middle classes. A group of pro-devolution activists, including SNP, Labour and Liberal people, churchmen, former civil servants and trade unionists, formed the Campaign for a Scottish Assembly. In due course, this produced a constitutional convention meant to bring in a wider cross-section of Scottish life behind their claim of right. It argued that if the Scots were to stand on their own two feet, as Mrs Thatcher insisted, they needed control over their own affairs. Momentum increased when the Scottish Tories lost half their remaining seats in the 1987 election, and when the poll tax was introduced there first to stave off a rebellion among homeowners about higher rates bills. Over the next three years, a staggering 2.5 million summary warrants for non-payment of the poll tax were issued in Scotland, a country of some 5 million people. The Constitutional Convention got going in March 1989 after Donald Dewar, Labour's leader in Scotland, decided to work with other parties. The Convention brought together the vast majority of Scottish MPs, all but two of Scotland's regional district and island councils, the trade unions, churches, charities and many more. Almost everyone indeed except the Conservatives, who were sticking with the original union, and the SNP, who wanted full independence. Great marches were held. The newspapers became highly excited. A detailed blueprint was produced for the first Scottish Parliament since 1707, very like the one later established. Scottish Tories, finding themselves increasingly isolated, fought back vainly. They argued that 
Thatcherism bore a close family resemblance to many of the ideas of the Scottish Enlightenment. Was not Scotland's time of greatness based on thrift, hard work, and enterprise? One of the cradles of Thatcherism, more recently, had been in Scotland, at St Andrews University. They pointed out that if a Tory government, based on English votes, was regarded as illegitimate by the Scots, then in future a Labour government, based on Scottish constituencies, might be regarded as illegitimate by the English. In the 1992 election, John Major made a passionate plea for the survival of the Union. Had the four countries never come together, their joint history would have never been as great. Are we, in our generation, to throw all that away? He won back a single Scottish seat. Various minor sops were offered to the Scots in his years, including the return of the Stone of Destiny with much ceremony. In 1997, the party, which had once had a majority of seats in Scotland, had not a single one left. So by the time Tony Blair became leader, Labour's commitment to devolution was long-standing. Unlike most of Labour's commitments, this was not a manifesto promised by a single party. It had been agreed away from Westminster, outside the new Labour hub, with a host of other bodies. John Smith, whose funeral in Scotland was a great gathering of the country's establishment, united in grief, had been a particularly passionate supporter. Dewar, now in charge of the project, was Smith's great friend. Blair could not simply tear this up. He was not much interested in devolution or impressed by it. Particularly not for Wales, where support had been far more muted. The only thing he could do was to insist that the Scottish Parliament and Welsh Assembly would only happen after referendums in the two countries which in Scotland's case would include a second question as to whether the Parliament should be allowed the power to vary the rate of income tax by 3p in the pound. This proved to be a great service to devolution, because it entrenched the legitimacy of the Parliament. In September 1997, shortly after the death of Diana, which interrupted campaigning, Scotland voted by 3 to 1 for the new Parliament, and by 63.5% to 36.5% to give it tax-raising powers. The vote for the Welsh Assembly was far closer. Indeed, wafer thin. The Edinburgh Parliament would have clearly defined authority over a wide spread of public life, education, health, welfare, local government, transport, housing, while Westminster kept taxation, defence, foreign affairs and some lesser issues. Wales's Assembly had fewer powers and no tax-raising rights. Only six Labour MPs said they would leave London and make a career in politics at home. In 1999, after nearly 300 years, Scotland got her Parliament, with 129 MSPs, and Wales, her Assembly, with 60 members. Both were elected by proportional representation, making coalition governments almost inevitable. In Scotland, Labour provided the first First Minister, Prime Minister being considered too provocative a title. He was Donald Dewar, a lanky, pessimistic and much-loved intellectual who looked a little like a dyspeptic heron. He took charge of a small pond of Labour and Liberal Democrat ministers. To start with, Scotland was governed from the Church of Scotland's General Assembly buildings, the forbidding Gothic affair in Edinburgh. Later it would move to a new building by a Catalan architect, Enrico Mirales, who died of a heart attack at an early stage. A brewery opposite the Palace of Holyrood House was demolished, and the complex new structure, with a roof meant to look like overturned fishing boats, was finally ready for use in 2004. 
It is architecturally impressive with a lightness and openness millions of miles removed from Westminster, but it was originally budgeted to cost fifty-five million pounds and ended up costing four hundred and seventy million pounds, producing a vitriolic public argument in Scotland about wasted money. Dewar never lived to see it opened, collapsing and dying from a brain hemorrhage in two thousand. Wales got her new assembly building by Richard Rogers in Cardiff Bay in two thousand and six, with much less controversy. Few predictions about the Scottish Parliament proved right. It was said that it would cause an early crisis at Westminster because of the unfairness of Scottish MPs being able to vote on England-only business, particularly when the cabinet was so dominated by Scots. This did not happen, though it may yet. It was said that Home Rule would put paid to the Scottish National Party. Under Alex Salmon, their pugnacious leader, they were by 2007 so popular they were ousting Labour from its old Scottish hegemony. It was assumed that the Scottish Parliament would be popular in Scotland. A long and tawdry series of minor scandals, plus the cost of the building, meant that it became a butt of ridicule instead. This too may change as Scots experience new laws it has passed. Among the policies the Edinburgh Parliament has implemented are more generous provision for older people, no upfront top-up fees for students from Scotland, though English students at Scottish universities must pay. New property laws to allow Highland communities to compulsorily purchase the land they occupy, and a ban on smoking in public places. In all these, Scotland has reinforced her reputation for being to the left of England, though extra taxes have not yet been levied on the Scots. The most striking change, however, has been how quickly Scottish public life has diverged from that of the rest of Britain since the Parliament was established. Scotland always had a separate legal system, schools, newspapers, and football leagues. Now she had separate politics too, with her own controversies and personalities, a news agenda increasingly different from that of England. This part of post-war Britain's story is still developing. Like England's, Scotland's economy has moved steadily towards services and away from manufacturing. After many years of decline, Scotland's population has begun to rise gently since 2003. With net immigration from the rest of the UK, when large numbers of asylum seekers began arriving in Britain, those who were sent to Scotland found that the Scots were considerably less welcoming than their piously democratic self-image suggested they would be, and anti-English feeling was not much quietened by Home Rule. Wales too has her own politics, but feels not radically different—a change of emphasis, not direction. Scotland feels more like a different country, and London now seems a lot more than 400 miles from Edinburgh. By the winter of 2006 to 7, some polls showed more than half of Scots prepared to vote for independence. This may be a blip, a reaction to an unpopular government in London. There had been earlier warnings of a coming breakup of Britain, a great topic of debate from the late 60s when the oil was discovered. Right through to the final years of John Major's administration in the mid-90s, it may be that a slow, soft separation is now taking place instead. There has been no constitutional chopper coming down to separate Scotland and England. It is more like two pieces of pizza being gently pulled apart, still together, but now connected only by strings of molten cheese. The dawning of a new era. Margaret Thatcher had been a celebrity strictly on her own terms, never big on forgiveness or peacemaking, but always understanding the importance of optimism. Blair was learning from her. 
He quickly invited her back to see him in Downing Street, and during his first years in office, showed that he had picked up some of her bad traits too. She was unreasonably suspicious of the civil service. So was he. She was unimpressed by her first cabinet. He felt the same about his. Like her, when it might have voted him down on a pet idea, he simply went round it. Like her, he toyed with and then discarded the ideologies of intellectuals as he saw fit. With Thatcher, it was the radicals of the new right urging her to sell off hospitals or motorways. With Blair, it was the more gentle spirits urging him to adopt stakeholding or communitarianism, novel ways of reordering or taming capitalism. For their authors, these were new political philosophies. For new labour, briefly useful fads. Blair was no more of an intellectual than she was. He shared middle-class instincts, just like her. She took to praising him, if in qualified terms. They were really quite similar. Yet, when Thatcher became Prime Minister, she had years of Whitehall experience. Blair had none. She may not have enjoyed the boozy male clubbiness of Parliament, but she respected the institution. Blair gave every sign of disliking the place intensely. But the biggest difference between the two was Blair's obsession with journalism. Thatcher did her best to cope with the media, a little flattery here, a blunderbuss blast from Bernard Ingham there. Blair, during his first years in power, was a fully engaged media politician. She sailed on the stuff. He swam in it. She knew who her press enemies were and who were her friends, and more or less kept both throughout. Blair tried to make everyone his friend, and would lose almost all of them. Campbell was more powerful in the Blair court than Ingham had been in the Thatcher one. Again, it was a generational thing. She had come into politics when newspapers were comparatively deferential, and it was beneath a rising minister to court journalists. Blair learnt the dangers of schmoozing media people, but slowly. More a problem of his early years, his relationship with the press and his misused press briefings hurt him and his reputation badly. One example of how came in the debate over British membership of the euro, the single currency finally taking shape at the beginning of 1999. Though never a fanatic on the subject, Blair's pro-European instincts and his desire to be the lead figure inside the EU predisposed him to announce that Britain would join, not in the first wave, perhaps, but soon afterwards. He briefed that this would happen. British business seemed generally in favour. But as the former Liberal Democrat leader Paddy Ashdown revealed in his diaries, Blair had a problem. According to Ashdown, Roy Jenkins told Blair in the autumn of 1997, I will be very blunt about this, you have to choose between leading in Europe or having Murdoch on your side. You can have one, but not both. Ouch. Pro-Euro journalists went to see him and came away thinking he was on their side. Anti-Euro journalists had the same experience. He had a pro-Euro advisor, Roger Liddell, but he also had an anti-Euro advisor, Derek Scott. The briefing and guesswork in the press was completely baffling. Lord Simon, the former BP boss, now in government working on Euro matters, held up a wadge of papers at one evening speech, announcing that they represented the speech about the Euro that had been written for him, before putting it down and confessing that he would not bother to read it. It had been completed an hour before, so the policy had probably changed. It was a joke, but meant to sting. Gordon Brown, who had been generally in favour of the euro, munched his way through Treasury reports. For him, stability came first, 
He concluded that it was not likely Britain could safely enter in the first Parliament. He warned Blair. The two argued. Eventually, they agreed a fudge. Britain would probably stay out during the 1997 Parliament, but the doors should be left slightly ajar. Pro-European business people and those Tories who had lent Blair and Brown conditional support, as well as Blair's continental partners, should be kept on board. So should the anti-Euro press. The terms of the delicate compromise were meant to be revealed in an interview given by Brown to The Times. Being more hostile to entry than Blair and talking to an anti-Euro paper, his team briefed more strongly than Blair would have liked. By the time the story was written, the pound had been saved from extinction for the lifetime of the Parliament. When Blair discovered this, he was aghast and began to phone desperately around until he reached Brown's press officer, the affable Charlie Whelan, a man Blair detested and had tried vainly to have sacked earlier in the year. Whelan was in the Red Lion public house in Whitehall and cheerfully confirmed to the Prime Minister on his mobile phone that his government's policy was indeed that Britain would not enter during the lifetime of the Parliament. As Whelan put it later, he was completely gobsmacked. Blair told him to row back. Whelan replied it was too late. The chaos surrounding such an important matter was ended and patched up by Brown, as he and his adviser Ed Balls quickly produced five economic tests which would be applied before Britain entered the euro. They required more detailed work by the Treasury. The underlying point was that the British and continental economies must be properly aligned first. Brown then told the Commons that though it was likely for economic reasons Britain would wait until after the next election, there was no constitutional or political reason not to join. Preparations for British entry would begin. It all gave the impression, not least to Blair, that once the tests were met, there would be a post-election referendum, followed by the demise of Stirling. In 1999, with tantantaras and a full-scale public launch at a London cinema, Blair was joined by the Liberal Democrat leader Charles Kennedy and the two former Tory cabinet ministers Ken Clark and Michael Heseltine to launch Britain in Europe. This was to be a counterblast to the anti-Euro campaign Business for Stirling. Blair promised that together they would demolish the arguments against the euro, and there was alarmist coverage about the loss of 8 million jobs if Britain pulled out of the EU. But this expensive, brightly coloured and crowded bandwagon was going nowhere at all. The real significance of the Red Lion kerfuffle was that the power to decide over membership of the euro passed decisively and forever from Blair in Downing Street to Brown whose treasury fortress became the guardian of the economic tests. Brown would keep Britain out, something which won him great personal credit among conservative press barons. There would be no referendum in the Blair years, however much the Prime Minister fretted. During his second administration, according to the former Cabinet Minister Claire Short, Blair offered Brown an astonishing deal. He would leave Number 10 soon if Brown would deliver the euro. Brown brusquely rejected the offer, telling Short that he didn't make policy that way and, in any case, could not trust Blair to keep his side of a bargain. But other historic changes went ahead. Both devolution and the Irish peace process reshaped the country and produced clear results. So did other constitutional initiatives, such as the expulsion of most hereditary peers from the Lords, ending its huge inbuilt Conservative majority, and the incorporation of the European Human Rights Convention into British law, allowing cases to come to court here. 
neither produced the outcomes ministers expected. The Lords became more assertive and more of a problem for Blair, not less of one. British judges' interpretation of the human rights of asylum seekers and suspected terrorists caused much anguish to successive Home Secretaries, and the human rights culture was widely criticised by newspapers. But at least, in each case, serious shifts in the balance of power were made, changes intended to make Britain fairer and more open. Other early initiatives would crumble to dust and ashes. One of the most interesting examples is the Dome, centrepiece of millennium celebrations inherited from the Conservatives. Blair was initially unsure about whether to forge ahead with the £1 billion gamble. He was argued into the Dome project by Peter Mandelson, who wanted to be its impresario, and by John Prescott, who liked the new money it would bring to a blighted part of East London. Prescott suggested New Labour wouldn't be much of a government if it could not make a success of this. Blair agreed, though had the Dome ever come to a cabinet vote, he would have lost. Architecturally, the Dome was striking and elegant, a landmark for London, which can be seen by almost every air passenger arriving in the capital. Public money was spent on cleaning up a poisoned semicircle of derelict land and bringing new tube and road links. The millennium was certainly worth celebrating. But the problem ministers and their advisers could not solve was what their pleasure dome should contain. Should it be for a great national party? Should it be educational, beautiful, thought-provoking? A fun park? Nobody could decide. The instinct of the British towards satire was irresistible, as the project continued surrounded by cranes and political hullabaloo. The dome would be magnificent, unique, a tribute to daring and can-do. Blair himself said it would provide the first paragraph of his next election manifesto. A well-funded, self-confident management was put in place, but the bright child's question, yes, but what's it for, would not go away. When the dome finally opened, at New Year, the Queen, Prime Minister and hundreds of donors, business people and celebrities were treated to a mishmash of a show which embarrassed many of them. Bad organisation meant most of the guests had a long, freezing and damp wait to get in for the celebrations. Xanadu, this was not. The fiasco meant the Dome was roasted in most newspapers, and when it opened to the public, the range of mildly interesting exhibits was greeted as a huge disappointment. Far fewer people came and bought tickets than was hoped. It turned out to be a theme park without a theme morphing in the public imagination into the earliest and most damaging symbol of what was wrong with new labour, an impressively constructed big tent containing not very much at all. It was produced by some of the people closest to the Prime Minister and therefore boomeranged particularly badly on him and the group already known as Tony's Cronies. Optimism and daring, it seemed, were not enough. Squeeze, relax. New Labour Economics The events described so far were all, in different ways, secondary to the transformation of Britain that Blair had promised. Northern Ireland was a crisis needing solving. Scotland and Wales were inherited commitments which did not engage much of the Prime Minister's time, nor any of his passion. The Dome was also inherited, a sally of optimism and opportunism, which went terribly wrong. The death of Diana was one of Macmillan's events, brilliantly handled. But none of this was what New Labour was really about. Its intended purpose 
was a more secure economy, radically better public services, and a new deal for the people at the bottom. And much of this was in the lap not of Tony Blair, but of Gordon Brown. The Saturnine Chancellor would become a controversial figure later in the government too, but his early months in the Treasury were rumbustuous as he overruled mandarins and imposed a new way of governing. Like Blair, Brown had no experience of government, and like Blair, he had run his life in opposition with a tight team of his own, dominated by his economic adviser, later an MP and Treasury Minister Ed Balls. Relations between Team Brown and the Treasury officials began badly and stayed frosty for a long time, rather as other civil service bosses resented the arrival of the rule of special advisers at Number Ten. Brown's handing of interest rate control to the Bank of England was a theatrical coup planned secretly in opposition and unleashed to widespread astonishment immediately. New Labour won. Other countries, including Germany and the United States. Had long run monetary policy independently of politicians, but this was an unexpected step for a left-of-centre British Chancellor. It turned out to be particularly helpful to Labour ministers, since it removed at a stroke the old suspicion that they would favour high employment over low inflation. It reassured the money markets that Brown would not, because he could not, debauch the currency. In a curious way, this gave him more freedom to tax and spend. As one of Brown's biographers put it, he could only give expression to his socialist instincts after playing the role of uber guardian of the capitalist system. The bank move has gone down as one of the clearest achievements of the New Labour era. Tellingly, like the devolution referendums, actions taken immediately after winning power. Brown also stripped the Bank of England of its old job of overseeing the rest of the banking sector. If it was worried about the health of commercial banks, but also in sole charge of interest rates, the two functions might conflict. His speed in doing so infuriated the bank's governor Eddie George, who came close to resigning and so spoiling Brown's early period as chancellor. Labour won an early reputation for being economically trustworthy. Brown was the granite and iron chancellor. Then a bachelor, his only mistress was the pinched-cheeked, pursed-mouthed Prudence. Income tax rates did not move. The middle classes could relax and feel free to vote Labour a second time, as they duly did in their droves in 2001. Even when Brown found money growing on trees, he did not spend it. In 2000, at the most iridescent, swollen glossiness of the dot-com bubble, when Britain was erupting with childlike, candy-coloured names for companies promising magical profits, when anyone would pay anything for anything allegedly digital. Brown sold off licences for the next generation of mobile phones for twenty-two point five billion pounds, vastly more than they were soon worth. The fruit went not into new public spending, but into repaying the public debt, thirty-seven billion pounds of it. By two thousand and two, government interest payments as a proportion of its income were the lowest since nineteen fourteen. Brown's stock soared. Another consequence of the early squeeze. Was more immediately controversial. What became known as stealth taxes, like the stealth bomber itself, made a lot of noise and did not always hit the targeted area. Stealth taxes included the freezing of income tax thresholds, so an extra 1.5 million people found themselves paying the top rate. The freezing of personal allowances, rises in stamp duty on houses, and a hike in national insurance, both of which provided huge new tax streams in the labour years. 
the palming off of cost onto council tax, which rose sharply, and most famously, the removal of tax credits for share dividends in 1997. This was sold at the time as a sensible technical reform, removing distortions and encouraging companies to reinvest in their core businesses. In fact, it had a devastating effect on the portfolios of pension funds. By 2006, according to a paper for the Institute of Actuaries, this measure was responsible for cutting the value of retirement pensions by £100 billion, a staggering sum. More than twice as much as the combined pension deficits of Britain's top 350 companies. Pensioners and older workers facing great holes in their pension funds were outraged. What is more, Treasury papers released in 2007 showed that Brown was given ample warning of the effect. The destruction of a once-proud pension industry is a more complicated story than the simple blame Brown charge. The actuarial industry, rule changes and pensions during the major years, a court ruling about guaranteed payouts and Britain's fast-ageing population are also part of the tale. But the pension fund hit produced more anger, directed personally against Brown, than any other single act in his time as Chancellor. Longer term, perhaps the most striking aspect of Brown's running of the economy was the stark, dramatic shape of public spending. For his first two years, he stuck fiercely to the promise he had made about continuing conservative spending levels. These were so tight that even the former Chancellor Ken Clark said he would not have actually kept to them had he been re-elected. But Brown brought down the state's share of public spending from nearly 41% of gross domestic product to 37.4% by 1999 to 2000, the lowest percentage since 1960, and far below anything achieved under Thatcher. He was doing the opposite of what earlier Labour chancellors had done. They had arrived in office, immediately started spending, and then had to stop and raise taxes later on. He began as Scrooge and quietly fattened up for Santa. Then there was an abrupt and dramatic shift, and public spending soared, particularly on health, back up to 43%. So there were the lean years, followed by the fat years, famine, then feast, squeeze, then relax. Prudence was a stern mistress. The first consequence of her reign was that the 1997-2001 Labour government achieved far less in public services than it had promised. During the 2001 election, Blair was confronted outside a Birmingham hospital when a postmistress called Sharon Storer exploded with rage at him over the poor care being given to her partner, who had cancer. Vainly, he tried to stem the flow and usher her away from microphones and cameras. New Labour's choreography was usually slick, but for once, Blair was pinned down and harangued by someone who was no longer prepared to hear his excuses. John Prescott had promised a vast boost in public transport, telling the Commons in 1997, I will have failed if in five years' time there are not many more people using public transport and far fewer journeys by car. It's a tall order, but I urge you to hold me to it. Because of prudence and Blair's worries about being seen as anti-car, Prescott had nothing like the investment to follow through and failed completely. Prudence meant that Brown ploughed ahead with cuts in benefit for lone parent families, angering Labour MPs and resulting in a Scottish Labour conference vote which called them economically inept, morally repugnant and spiritually bereft. Reform cost money, and without money it barely happened in the first term, 
except in isolated areas where Blair or Brown put their heads down and concentrated. The most dramatic programme was in raising literacy and numeracy among younger children, where number 10 worked closely with the Education Secretary, David Blunkett, and scored real successes. But unequivocally successful public service reforms were rare. And the real drawback of the squeeze-then-relax-brown guide to fiscal fitness was that he did not entirely conform to it himself. Some new money had to be raised, and it was. One curious thing a time-traveller from the 70s might notice in the Britain of the early 21st century would be unfamiliar uniforms and symbols in public offices, by roadsides, in hospitals and outside schools. The men and women on security duty in the Treasury in not-quite-official caps and jackets, the badges on construction workers' jackets and helmets, the little logos of jumping mannequins, bright flowers, bean-like blobs, and the new names, Carillion, Vinci, or Serco, were all visual hints about the greatest change in how government was working. The name for it, Public Finance Initiative, or PFI, was dull. Yet the change was big enough to arouse worry even outside the small tribes of political obsessives. The underlying idea was simple. It had started life under Norman Lamont, five years before Labour came to power, when he experimented with privatising public projects and allowing private companies to run them, keeping the revenue. A group led by the Bank of America built and ran a new bridge connecting the Isle of Skye to the mainland. There were outraged protests from some islanders about paying tolls to a private consortium, and eventually the Scottish executive bought the bridge back. At the opposite corner of the country, another bridge was built joining Kent and Essex across the Thames at Dartford, the first bridge across the river in a new place for more than half a century. It was run by a company called Le Crossing and successfully took tolls from motorists. To start with, Labour hated this idea. PFIs were a mix of two things, the privatisation of capital projects, with government paying a fee over many years, and the contracting out of services, waste collection, school meals, cleaning, to private companies, which had been imposed on unwilling socialist councils from the 80s. Once in power, Labour ministers began to realise that those three little letters were political magic. But the other thing about PFI is that it allows today's ministers to announce and oversee exciting new projects and take the credit for them, while the full bill is left for taxpayers 20 or 50 years in the future. Today's spending on schools or hospitals is a problem that will eventually land on the desk of an education minister who is presently still at primary school, or a chancellor who has not yet arrived at the maternity unit. This was government on tick. It was invented in Britain. And for better or worse, it is now spreading round the world. PFIs were particularly attractive when so many other kinds of spending were so tightly controlled by prudence. At the same time, large swathes of money for new schools, hospitals, prisons and the like were declared to be investment, not spending, and put to one side of the national accounts. Was this clever, or merely clever-clever? The justification was that private companies would build things and run them so much more efficiently than the state that profits paid to them by taxpayers would be more than compensated for. There is no doubt that sometimes this has been so, but assertions tail off into guesswork because they depend on misty unknowables. How well a modern civil service might have run such projects itself, whether the contract was drawn up tightly enough to fully protect the taxpayer, and so on. 
Committees of MPs certainly thought they had found incompetence and inefficiency in PFI deals. Ministers pressed against a wall tended to reply that since without PFIs Britain would not have got the shiny new school buildings or health centres that were so desperately needed by the late 90s, it was by definition a good thing. It was certainly a big thing. By the end of 2006, a total of £53 billion of such contracts had been signed, with another £28 billion in the pipeline for fire stations, army barracks, helicopter training schools, psychiatric units, prisons, roads, bridges, government offices, computer programmes, immigration systems, as well as hundreds of schools and hospitals. The biggest was for the modernisation of the London Underground, hugely expensive in legal fees and hugely complex in contracts. Tellingly, the peak year for the PFIs was 2000, just as the early Treasury stringency on conventional spending had bitten most. The cost of the forward contracts for running these places, sometimes half a century ahead, is hard to estimate, but there is certainly over £100 billion of rent due to be paid by tomorrow's taxpayers. In the private sector, lawyers, company managers and accountants began to specialise in PFIs. A whole new business sector arose. In the public sector, civil servants struggled to grapple with the new skills they would need to negotiate with unfamiliar private sector partners. There is an obvious problem about defining the real risk of these projects. If a firm is commissioned to build a prized new hospital at a certain budget and falls behind, to the point where failure looms unless the taxpayer intervenes again, is it likely the hospital will simply be abandoned? Risk is a routine business idea but means something else in politics. How do you blend the culture of ministerial promises and that of construction and IT firms? Yet another white-collar industry arose to try, and by the mid-2000s, the number of PFI contracts being sold on from one company to another, a booming secondary market in subcontracted government, was well over four-fifths of the total. How to keep a grip on sold-on PFIs? Another mini-profession popped up to try that, too. All of it, of course, paid for by the taxpayer. Yet, PFIs did not make quite the noise one might have expected. Most politicians from most parties reflected that one day they too might find them useful. The Moment of Truth So when did Brown's great shift in policy happen? When did straightforward, on-balance sheet, old-fashioned public spending, financed by old-fashioned taxes, return to the political agenda? And why did the great romance between Gordon and Prudence end? It occurred appropriately, just as Brown's real-life romance with Sarah Macaulay, a very bright public relations businesswoman, was becoming public. They would marry in August 2000, six months after Prudence had been told to make other arrangements. And despite Sharon Storer's disappointment the following year, it was indeed the National Health Service which triggered the change of pace. In its first election manifesto, New Labour promised to safeguard the basic principles of the NHS, which we founded. It protested that under the Tories there had been 50,000 fewer nurses, but a rise of no fewer than 20,000 managers, red tape which Labour would pull away and burn. Though critical of the Tory internal market, Blair promised to keep a split between those who commissioned health and those who provided it. The overall message was less fiddling and a bit more money. Under Frank Dobson, Labour's new health secretary, a staunch traditionalist and the man with the filthiest sense of humour in British politics, this is what happened. 
There was little reform, but there was, year by year, just enough extra money to buy off the winter crises. But then a quite different crisis hit the headlines. As often happens, it began with individual human stories, which rapidly came together and expanded towards a general truth. First there was a particularly awful case of an old lady whose cancer was made inoperable after repeated delays. Then came a furious denunciation of his elderly mother's treatment by Professor Robert Winston, the Labour peer and fertility expert much admired by Blair. Winston said that Britain's health service was much the worst in Europe, was getting worse still, and that the government had been deceitful about the true picture. This set off something close to panic in Whitehall, not only because Winston was about the most authentic witness anyone could imagine, but also because he was, in general terms, right. And Labour's polling showed the country knew it. So, after a difficult haggle with Brown, Blair declared on Sir David Frost's Sunday morning television show in January 2000 that the NHS badly needed more money and he would bring Britain's health spending up to the European average within five years. That was a huge promise, a third as much again in real terms, close to what actually happened. Gordon Brown was unhappy. He thought that Blair had pre-empted his decision, had not spoken to Frost enough about the need for health service reform to accompany the money, and according to Downing Street rumour, had stolen my bloody budget. Brown made up for this on the day itself, when he promised that from then until 2004, health spending would rise at above 6% beyond inflation every year, by far the largest sustained increase in NHS funding in any period in its 50-year history, and half as much again for health care for every family in this country. The tilt away from tight spending controls and towards expansion had started. There was more to come. With an election looming in 2001, Brown also announced a review into the NHS and its future by a former banker called Derek Wanless. As soon as the election was over, broad hints about necessary tax rises began to be dropped. When Wanless finally reported, he confirmed much that the winter crisis of nearly two years earlier had shown. The NHS was not, whatever Britons fondly believed, as good as health systems in other similar countries, and it needed a lot more money. Wanless also rejected a radical change in funding, such as a move to insurance-based or semi-private health care. Brown immediately used this as objective proof that taxes had to rise to save the NHS, something Wanless felt a little uneasy about. Was he being used, in the words of one writer, as Brown's human shield? At any rate, in his next budget of March 2002, Brown broke with a political convention which had reigned since the 80s that direct taxes may never be put up again. He raised a special 1% national insurance levy, equivalent to a penny on income tax, to fund the huge reinvestment in Britain's health. Public spending shot up, above all on health. In some ways it paid off. By 2006 there were around 300,000 extra NHS staff compared to 1997. That included more than 10,000 extra senior hospital doctors, about a quarter more, and 85,000 more nurses. But there were also nearly 40,000 managers, twice as many as Brown and Blair had ridiculed the Conservatives for hiring in the days when they were campaigning against red tape. An ambitious computer project for the whole NHS became an expensive catastrophe. Meanwhile, the health service budget rose from £37 billion to more than £92 billion a year. The vast investment produced results. Waiting lists, a source of great public anger in the mid-90s, fell by 200,000. 
By 2005, Blair was able to talk of the best waiting list figures since 1988. Hardly anyone was left waiting for an inpatient treatment for more than six months. Death rates from cancer for people under the age of 75 fell by 15.7% between 1996 and 2006, and death rates from heart disease fell by just under 36%. The public finance initiative, meanwhile, meant that new hospitals were being built around the country. If only that was the full story. Zars, quangos, agencies, commissions, access teams, and planners hunched over the NHS as Whitehall, having promised to devolve power, now imposed a new round of mind-dazing control. By the autumn of 2004, hospitals were subject to an astonishing 100-plus inspection regimes. A great war broke out between Brown in the Treasury and the Blairite Health Secretary Alan Milburn about the basic principles of running hospitals. Milburn, backed by Blair, wanted more independence and competition. Brown asked how you could have competition when, for most people, there was just one big local hospital. If it lost the competition, it could hardly shut down. Polling suggested that in this, Brown was making a popular point. Most people wanted better hospitals, not more choice. Blair's team responded that they would only get better hospitals if there was choice. A truce was eventually declared, with the establishment of a small number only of independent or foundation hospitals. Britain was back to the old argument: Do you try to run everything from the centre using targets as your flails and unelected quangos as your legionnaires, or do you mimic the private sector, allowing hospitals to rise and fall, expand and close? By the 2005 general election, Michael Howard's Conservatives were attacking Labour for wasting money and allowing people's lives to be put at risk in dirty, badly run hospitals. Just like Labour once had, they were promising to cut bureaucracy and slash the number of organisations inside the health service. By the summer of 2006, despite that huge increase in money, the health service was facing a cash crisis. The amount of money involved was not large as a percentage of the total budget, but trusts in some of the most vulnerable parts of the country were on the edge, from Hartlepool to Cornwall to London. Across Britain, seven thousand jobs had gone, and the Royal College of Nursing was predicting thirteen thousand more would go soon. Many expensively qualified new doctors and specialists could not find work. After the great spending U-turn of 2000 to 2002 and historic amounts of new money, it seemed that wage costs, pricey new drugs, poor management, and the vast bureaucratic expense of endless reforms had resulted in a health service which was irritating people as much as ever. Less fashionable health causes such as mental health felt left out. And outside the NHS, there was a vast growth in the reach of private insurance and private health. Bupa, the leading private operator, was covering around 2.3 million people in 1999. Six years later, the figure was more than 8 million. This partly reflects greater affluence, but it is not a resounding vote of confidence on the success of Labour's investment in the NHS. A parallel story could be told about schools. Here too, traditional socialists wanted a single system for every child, comprehensive across the country, and run directly from Whitehall. 
except, of course, in now-devolved Scotland and Wales. Those dangerously semi-independent institutions, the Tories' grant-maintained schools, though there were few enough of them, were abolished. In education, the government did everything that enthusiasm, hard work and determination could to improve things from Whitehall. First under David Blunkett, then his successors, a stream of plans on every aspect of school life poured out of the department. By 2001, in a single year, 3,840 pages of instructions were being sent to schools. One head teacher settled down and counted 525 separate targets for his school. This literal wheelbarrow load of paperwork no more transformed the schools than the revised NHS bureaucracy was transforming hospitals. Blair tried a new tack and returned to the idea of semi-independent schools. There were already specialist schools in the state sector with say over their admissions, but this was to be at a different level. Businesses, faith groups and rich local businessmen would endow part of the cost and be allowed some involvement in their ethos. As with hospitals, there was great labour resistance. Did this not mean a possible return to some kind of selection? Another great battle began, and under pressure from Labour MPs, it was written into law that such schools could not select by academic ability. Links with local education authorities were also to be kept. Yet it seemed possible in the early years of the new century that Britain was moving back towards an educational model half-remembered from long ago. Schools were being sponsored by evangelical Christians, computer companies or firms of accountants. Was this so different from the ancient schools set up by local worthies, livery companies and religious orders? Some even favoured a teaching of life's origins which edged Darwin aside in favour of the Bible. There was a great growth too in Muslim schools, closed to faithless outsiders. The government tried to make faith schools open up a little to people from other communities, but were forced to pull back. For some, this was a betrayal of the idea of one nation implicit in comprehensives, a retreat to ghetto schooling. Others asked if locally elected councillors oversaw such independent schools, and if they were restrained from being too aggressive in ramming doctrines down young throats, was that such a bad thing? Paul suggested parents were less worried about structures than lax discipline and too easy exams. Such schools are certainly a decisive break from the direction of education in the 60s and 70s, and far nearer the dreams of Thatcher and her conservative successors. As in health, private schools boomed. As the public spending had begun to flow during the second Blair administration, vast amounts of money had gone in pay rises, new bureaucracies and on bills for outside consultants. Ministries had been unused to spending again and did not always do it well. There were other unfortunate consequences. Brown and his team resorted to double and triple counting early spending increases to give the impression they were doing more for hospitals, schools and transport than they actually could. They were rightly roasted for it. A fascinating insight into the problems faced by the Blair government in public service reform came in 2005 when a former spin doctor published a book. Peter Hyman, a young, serious-minded man, had worked for Tony Blair since he became leader, rising to head the Number 10 Strategic Communications Unit. He wrote speeches, spun for him, argued with him, and saw the power game at its highest, most exhilarating level.
In 2003, after sweating hard at Blair's conference speech, he decided it was time to make the favoured buzzword renewal personal. He resigned and became a teacher at a tough inner London comprehensive school, Islington Green. His book about the reality jolt this produced remains one of the best texts on modern British politics available. Late on, he is arguing with a pupil about why, when the Prime Minister says something, it does not just happen. I look him in the eye and say, When Tony promises to deliver on education, what needs to happen is that you pass your exams. How can he guarantee that? You may not even turn up for them. Hyman reflects that his old way of doing politics, dealing frantically with 24-hour media, is useless for delivering a better school. Instead of conflict and novelty, consistency is needed. Not battles, but partnership. Now, looking through the other end of the telescope, I see how unequal is the relationship between politicians and the people. Those at the centre relish ideas and, in the main, are bored by practicalities. Those who suggest better ways of making policy work are too often dismissed as whingers. Why can't politicians acknowledge that those on the front line might know more? It is a good question. In trying to achieve better policing, more effective planning, healthier school food, prettier town centres and a hundred other hopes, the centre of government ordered and cajoled, hassled and harangued, always high-minded, always speaking for the people. The railways, after yet another disaster, were shaken up again. In very controversial circumstances, Railtrack, the once profitable monopoly company operating the lines, was driven to bankruptcy and a new system of detailed Whitehall control was imposed. At one point, Tony Blair boasted of having 500 targets for the public sector and later his deputy had found five times that number for local government and transport alone. Parish councils, small businesses and charities found they were loaded with directives, not as many as schools or hospitals, but always more, interfering with much of what they wanted to do. The interference was always well meant, but it clogged up the arteries of free decision-taking and frustrated responsible public life. Blair famously complained early in his time as Prime Minister that he had scars on my back from trying to get reform in the public sector. Perhaps with a little less autoflagellation and a little more conversation, both he and the country would have been happier. Rebel British Meanwhile, the British people, the end point of this frantic activity, proved as unpredictably stroppy as they always had been. In general, it was moral and cultural protest that took the place of the economic controversies of earlier decades. Through most of the Blair years, the fox-hunting struggle engorged month after month of parliamentary time and unbelievable amounts of political energy. Polling suggested the country cared almost as little about it as the Prime Minister. Plenty of people had views, but few held them strongly. Behind this, though, was the determination of animal rights activists to get something out of an avowedly radical government, while the Countryside Alliance, which expanded its campaigning to include fishing, organic food and much else, represented a feeling that part of the historic nation was being ignored, that there were people of all classes who did not fit into the new Labour worldview. Fox hunting was a country pursuit since medieval times. The poem Sir Gawain and the Green Knight contains a description from around the year 1370, which is recognisable in its essentials today. 
By the 1670s, its rituals, red coats, language and literature were a part of British culture known around the world. Only a part, however. Hunting always had its detractors. In the 18th century, the fox-hunting Tory squire, red-faced and stupid, was a staple of urban Whig propaganda. The hunting nickname for the fox, Charlie, refers to the great Whig radical Charlie James Fox. Towards the end of the 19th century, the thunderous passage of whooping huntsmen became an emblem among radicals of oppressive aristocracy riding roughshod over the people. In Oscar Wilde's phrase, they were the unspeakable in full pursuit of the uneatable. Little followed from this until the arrival in the middle of the 20th century of a militant animal rights movement, determined to frustrate hunting by using scent sprays, horns, and human barriers. The first example of saboteurs at work seems to have been in August 1958, when members of the League Against Cruel Sports, which had been founded much earlier in 1927, used chemicals to try to disrupt the Devon and Somerset staghounds. Direct action like this began to be used against fox hunters too. With the North Warwickshire and the Old Barkley at Amersham confronted in 1962 to 63. In December 1963, the Hunt Saboteurs Association was formed by a young journalist in Brixham, Devon, and the practice quickly spread. Confrontations between Hunt supporters and Sabs, often violent, with the police in full pursuit, became a regular feature of country life from then on. Sabs would compare themselves to the hunters, needing quick wits. Courage and good tactics to confuse the hounds and allow the fox or stag to escape. They were accused of thuggery. They accused the hunt supporters of being brutal to them, and many bones and noses were broken in the bracken. There was a bit of class conflict and of city against country in it all. Over time, it became clear that while the sabs might save some foxes, they were unable to stop the hunts. So animal rights activists turned increasingly to Parliament to get it banned. Labour voters and MPs tended to be against hunting, and the party took a hundred thousand pound donation from the animal rights lobby before the 1997 election. When New Labour won with a massive majority, it was clear that a parliamentary move to ban hunting with hounds was inevitable. With so many MPs committed, it would probably become law. This directly affected the 200,000 people who were hunting regularly, and with those who watched and supported them, perhaps a half a million in all. A new organisation, the Countryside Alliance, was formed to campaign against a ban and held its first big rally with 120,000 people present at Hyde Park six weeks after the election. End of disc twenty.